You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Acts chapter 3 verses 1 through 10 is where we're at. A title of the sermon, I don't usually say this a lot either, but title of the sermon, this might help direct your thoughts as we work our way through. Title of the sermon is Fixing the Unfixable. Um, might be a phrase that might stick with you that God might use in your heart this morning. Let, let me read Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Luke says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning, right? Uh, Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We beg you, we ask you to come and fill this space with your presence. So we believe and trust that you're already here because your word promises us that when two or more are gathered together, there you are. That your presence is there. So, Father, we trust in that promise, and we also trust in another promise where you say that when your word goes forth, it has a purpose and a a plan, that it will not return void. And so, Father, we pray that your word would be proclaimed this morning in in a powerful way and that it would produce fruit, uh, godly fruit in our hearts and lives, in this church family and all who would hear this message. Pray, God, most of all, that you would come and direct our attention to the foot of the cross and to the power of the empty tomb and to the promise of your return, and the promise of eternity in heaven where there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more brokenness, and no more sin. Lord, turn our attention there. Help us to exalt Jesus and to encounter Jesus in such a way that by the power of your spirit, whatever is broken in each of us this morning would be fixed. We trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. 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 I think the major question that flows through what I'm about to say um, is, is, is kind of a question, right? Uh, what is it that you walked in with this morning that you, you sense is broken inside of you? Like that, I think it's a simple question. Um, you might say, man, I feel like I got a whole backpack full of brokenness. I don't, you know. Or maybe, maybe you're in a place where, um, like this man that we just read, since birth, 
since the time that you were born, you look back and you go, whatever that, whatever that thing is in your life, in your heart, and you're like, I've been walking around with that for however many years since I was born. If it's an emotional issue or a physical issue or a relational issue um, or addiction issue, whatever it might be inside of you, a sin issue, what is that broken thing inside of you that you put your finger on and that you go, God, I just really wish God would fix this. Maybe it's even that broken thing inside of you that over time you've kind of lost hope. And you're like, I've walked with this for so long, I'm not sure that he's ever going to fix it. I'm just stuck with it. And uh, you just kind of back shelf it or you side shelf it. It comes up when it comes up. Uh, but you kind of moved on from that. You just live with that like it's always going to be there maybe. I don't know what that area is for you, but I want to start there and just say think about that for a moment. Make a note if you need to, a mental note that my prayer is that God would do something through this sermon that would miraculously fix whatever that broken piece is inside of you. When you look at the text in front of us, if you remember where we were just at, some pretty miraculous things happened, right? Uh, when you look at the first part of the book of Acts that we've just studied, Holy Spirit comes, the room is shaken, tons of fire, speaking in tongues, and Word of God is translated to the ends of the earth, all the known languages of the world. People think that the early church is drunk, and Peter gets up. Peter used to be a coward, right? Ran from Jesus, cursed him, swore him. Peter gets up totally changed man 50 days later. <clears throat> 50 days later. Peter gets up totally changed man. Preaches a fantastic message. 3,000 people get saved. That's his explanation is... Everything that's happening here has to do with Jesus. Came into this world as the perfect lamb, the king, God of the universe, creator, one who left behind all of his wealth in heaven to come here, to condescend to earth on behalf of sinners so that you and I in our sinfully broken stage could be drawn to him by the power of the spirit, be given a new heart, be saved and have the hope of eternity, right? That same King Jesus, the one whom they had slaughtered, obviously left the tomb empty, is returning not only to uh, get his bride on that pale horse with those robes drenched in blood, with a tattoo on his leg, however you might translate that, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. This is a pretty massive picture of what's going to take place. And, and Peter says, yo, you better get right with God. Better repent. That's his, that's his message, right? <clears throat> then there's this description that we saw last week of what the early church looked like, right? All their, their devotion to prayer, to worship, to preaching, um, to generously sharing together, being united in their generosity. And we kind of keyed in on the fact that they were in awe. They weren't just in awe of the wonders and signs that were being done. They, they were in awe of the God who was doing all this. There's that kind of awe among the early church and among the believers that along with the external pressure of persecution and hardship, and I would say the internal pressure of continuously walking in repentance from sin, you know, pressure creates diamonds and pearls, right? In that pressurized fashion, the Holy Spirit it's something miraculous in the church. The entire church was in awe of God. That's where we left off last week. The 
What is it that stops us? What's the barrier to us being in awe of God? Uh, What Luke does now is he uh, turns his attention to one of the stories of one of these wonders and signs that were being done. This lame man being healed. And if you, if you look at the text, not, not just the text that we're in this morning, um, but, but if you look at it, it it's, there's a context to this, right? Um, so, so the text in front of us, really, it's the beginning of an episode in the early church uh, that, that basically takes up nearly two entire chapters. So the next two chapters start here, and the, the episode just continues to spiral out. It, it's, it's really a cool story, okay? The, the first thing that we see that Luke describes here in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 3 is the healing of the lame man. We're going to study that a little more in depth this morning. But I want you to catch the, the context, not only what kind of came before, but now what's going to be coming after in this story. Second thing we see is Luke describing Peter's sermon in the temple immediately following the healing of this lame man as he explains what happened to the lame man and why it happened. A third thing happens after Peter preaches the sermon in the temple is uh, Luke describes just exactly how the leaders of that temple, the leaders of the Jews, responded to Peter's sermon. And they respond by arresting Peter and John for a night. And they attempt to coerce them. And they attempt to intimidate them. I'd like to preach that text this morning for some reason. (laughs) They attempted to coerce and intimidate them. They wanted them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Right? Would have been an intense moment. Once that got all over with and Peter and John get out of there basically unscathed and they're okay... Uh, You get into chapter, uh, you you get into the second half of chapter 4 from verses 23 to 31. And the last thing Luke describes is how the early church responded to the threats of their enemies. And their response to the threats of their enemies, the people who did not like them and wanted them to stop, their response was to hold a prayer meeting. That's what they did. So, So the point of the entire section here is obvious, right? What's the point? The point of the entire section is that the spread of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ crucified for our sin, risen in victory over Satan's sin and death, uh, returning as the reigning king of kings and lord of lords, the spread of this message by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of the early church, that cannot be stopped. And all we are is an extension of that. We're just a few thousand years later. There's nothing that can stop the transforming power of the message of the gospel. And I would add that if you find opposition to your ministry, that opposition is happening because you've probably come really close to touching an area that Satan thinks belongs to him, but ultimately belongs to the king of kings. It's like stirring up a hornet's nest. And I think it's great. (laughs) The message of the gospel could be summed up uh, maybe this way. 
by saying that the God specializes in fixing what is broken in our lives in some of the most unexpected and miraculous ways. Now, I understand the gospel needs to include sin and brokenness and repentance and the cross. And yes. But I think a good headline could start there. It could be a doorway to explaining the gospel. Let me say it again. God specializes in fixing what is broken in our lives in some of the most unexpected and miraculous ways. Well, speaking of brokenness, look at the lame man with me for a moment in verses 1 through 2. Luke tells us in verse 1 that Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, right? What's the hour of prayer? The hour of prayer, he says, is the ninth hour. Now, you see phrases like this when you're studying the Bible. You go, why does the ninth hour matter? Or you can just read past it and be like, it doesn't really matter to me. But there is an interesting connection, right? When, 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 when Luke says that they're heading to the temple to pray around the ninth hour, that is the exact same hour when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished. So some commentators surmise that maybe as uh, Peter and John are walking to that temple, right into the mouth of the lion's den, as we know later because they get arrested for preaching the gospel, right? They get opposition. As they're walking in there, it's possible that what's going through their heart and mind is, our Savior said it is finished. We're going to go there and pray. See what happens. And God gives them this massive opportunity, right? Which also creates a bunch of opposition down the road. It is finished. Sometimes I don't know what more we would need to hear from God, honestly, other than those three words. If we could hang on to that word, it is finished. And even the things that are not completely fixed in our lives now, maybe we would have the courage and the hope to hang on and know that what is finished now will be fully realized in eternity. But that's what gives us hope to walk through the dark, shadowy lands of this world. One thing we can be sure of here is that Luke wants us to remember this. He wants us to remember that the, the early church was extremely devoted to prayer. Okay? Um, not only are Peter and John actually headed to the temple in this passage to, to pray, uh, but when you look at the entire section that we talked about from chapter 3, verse 1, down to the end of chapter 4, verse 31, it's bracketed. And you got like bookends. With uh, little episodes in between the bookends, right? And the bookends are prayer meetings. So that's one thing that Luke would like us to know is that on every side of the miraculous things that God does and the crazy situations that we get ourselves in and the, the brokenness we experience in other people's lives as well as the brokenness in our own lives, prayer. Prayer is very, very important. Prayer is actually the activity that fuels the preaching of the gospel all throughout the book of Acts. One commentator said something to this effect that the early church was far more concerned with prayer than they were activism. We have a tendency to want to get into activism, going to change these things. It seems to me that all throughout the early church, even if you do a church history study, which I've been doing lately, um, you find a church that does get involved in activism. Um, 
But you also find a church that once it gets powerful and wealthy and able to engage activism in the cultural center, it gets very, very corrupt. When the church was small and persecuted and then they did not have the city center and they were seen as outcasts of the city, outcasts of the community, what did they do? They prayed. Because prayer is what we've been commanded to do. Activism is not what we've been commanded to do. It's interesting. So just as Peter and John begin to enter the temple, Luke tells us in verse 2 that a man... He says, a lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, there are a few things that I think are important to note here about the lame man and about what's going on right here. First of all, this man had become lame since birth, right? Since he was born. Now, if you flip over and you look at chapter 4, verse 22, you find out that this dude was just over 40 years old. I don't know how old all y'all are here. I don't know how old my kids are. Hope you're halfway there, right? <laughs> halfway there. I'm there because I'm 45. Dude was over 40 years old. This man has suffered in his brokenness with the unfixable thing in his life for over 40 years. That's a long time. The second thing I noticed is that this man was fully dependent on his friends and family to the extent that they carried him to church every day. As I tell you, he's absolutely helpless. Ever been in that situation where you feel absolutely helpless or you know I actually am absolutely helpless? If God doesn't show up and do something, I'm dead meat. Maybe that's a little strong. But... Third thing I noticed is that his caretakers actually place him in the doorway of the temple. Imagine you see the doorways of our church. There's nothing to them. In fact, they're kind of ugly <laughs> and need to be replaced and probably painted the same color. And then he door sleeps. <laughs> I can see the sunlight coming in underneath the back door. Anyways, this doorway to the temple. It was a big gateway to the courtyard, but we're going to just call it the doorway to the temple because imagery is helpful. His caretakers, the lame man's caretakers, place him in the doorway of the temple, and it was known as what? The beautiful gate. <clears throat> now, again, we would not call our church doors beautiful, but they called this one beautiful. Why? It doesn't immediately tell you in the text unless you do some research on what the beautiful gate was. In a very simple summary, without taking a long time, the beautiful gate was a massive, and when I say massive, I'm, like, I'm thinking... Just this massive archway, okay? I don't think it was as big as the archway to Kearney. You know, when you head down the interstate, you see that archway. But I do think it had that same sense of that is stinking enormous. And not only was it enormous, but it was covered in the most expensive bronze you could possibly buy. In fact, commentators would say that the bronze that it was covered in shined so much and was so expensive that it actually made silver and gold look dirt cheap. So this broken lame man is lying in this ornate doorway of a temple. What's the image you're getting when you think about that? The image you get here is of absolute extreme poverty and brokenness against the backdrop of extreme wealth. Last thing you notice about this man is 
He's not only lame and poor, but he's also a social outcast. Not wanted. He would never make it past the beautiful temple doors. He would never make it into the inner sanctuary of the church gathering. Would never make it into the community. There were social restrictions that had been placed on people with his condition for thousands of years. Leviticus chapter 21 will give you all the context you need for that. And the way that the Jews applied those laws. Needless to say, this lame beggar was in a helpless, hopeless, lonely, and I think incredibly broken situation. This had to have been, this was his predicament for over 40 years. I think that long ago he had stopped dreaming. You know, when you stop dreaming, what do you do? You survive. I think long ago he had stopped dreaming of the day that he would be able to walk. I think that all he could do was fight for his survival on a daily basis and beg for money. Even though it makes absolute logical and wise sense that at that point money is not going to fix his problem. All money is going to do is help him to survive to the next pitiful experience of a day. You know what that feels like, right? A little bit. Somewhere in your life. This kind of leads us to the the beggar's big ask. I want to make sure I enunciate that really, really well. That just went through my mind. The beggar's big ask. Verses 3 through 5. This lame man sees Peter and John about to go into the temple, right? Text tells us. What does he do? He asks to receive alms. And both Peter and John look at him and they're like, hey, yo, look at us. The image is of a man on the side of the street, not even looking at you because not even sure if you'll actually look at him or if you'll actually hear him or if you'll actually try to help him in his brokenness. He's just got his eyes turned up to heaven, right? And he's saying alms, alms, alms for the poor, alms for the broken. And they pause and they go, hey, hey, look at us. Snaps him too. Luke tells us that he fixed his attention on them. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them, Luke says. So notice what the beggar did not ask for. Notice that he did not ask to learn about God. Notice that he did not ask for help in drawing nearer to God. Notice that he certainly did not ask for God to heal him. The beggar asked for money. And when Peter and John asked him to look at them, he looked at them expecting to get what? Money. Now the expectation of the beggar's ask, this big ask of his, Reveals a lot about the nature of the hope that he had. It was hopeless. He did not expect or hope 
to encounter God at the temple. He did not expect or hope to learn about God at the temple. He certainly did not expect or hope to be healed by God at the temple. The beggar's only hope, his only expectation was to get enough money, like I said, to survive another miserable day begging at the temple gates. This was his existence. This was his only expectation until God shows up and does the unexpected in a very powerful and miraculous way. Have you ever experienced God showing up in your life and doing the unexpected in a powerful way? Now go back to that thing that you know you've been living with since birth. You've got to hang on to the fact that God has shown up in your life and has done unexpectedly, powerfully miraculous things. You've got to hang on to those because God has given you those experiences to draw you to him, to magnify himself so that you would not get your eyes on the circumstances of this earth, but that you would lock your eyes on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who won your salvation at the cross, who left that tomb empty so you know death has no power over you, who has promised to return and bring you home to spend eternity in complete perfection is to get your eyes off of this and get your eyes up there. As Paul would say, I look forward, I look upwards to the call of God in Christ Jesus. God shows up here in a really unexpected, powerful way. And we know how the story goes, right? As the lame beggar locks his eyes with Peter and John, right? He's fully expecting a financial donation. Give me a check, please. Peter opens his mouth in verses 6 through 8. And what does he say? I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then Luke tells us that Peter took hold of that lame beggar by the right hand. And he raises him up immediately, and his feet and his ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and he began to walk. Now this moment, if you, if you really sit with it for a minute and think about it, this, this moment had to have been absolutely breathtaking as God did the unexpected in a super powerfully miraculous way. Again, go back to where you've experienced God. Doing something unexpected and powerful in your life. I would have never expected that blowing down the highway, getting hit by a truck 23 years ago, waking up in the middle of the street in the mess that my life was in with broken bones and blood all over. I would have never expected that God would have spoke to me and drawn me to himself. I would have expected that he would just left me there to rot and die. He didn't do that. I think it's worth noticing that Luke here, something the commentators note, um, Luke is a good doctor. One of the things about Luke is he is very meticulous um, because he's a doctor. Later becomes Paul's personal doctor, in my opinion. It's a good doctor. He uses medical terms here in the original language, and it's the only place these medical terms are used. 
in the New Testament. <clears throat> and he describes how the lame beggar's feet and ankles are made strong. We were just having this conversation late last night about <laughs> Greek and Hebrew and how it works together. And I know Joe Nelson, Pastor Joe Nelson knows, and he can tell you more than I can, but it's weird because some of the Greek and Hebrew words, when they're standing alone, they can mean vastly different things. They have all sorts of interpretations depending on what other words surround them. And so it's, it's really interesting in biblical interpretation. Um, most of you are like, why does that matter? <laughs> Feet and ankles were made strong. Um, that's the phrase. All the words that are together there are medical terms that are used nowhere else in the scriptures. What Luke is literally saying here is that, that once, uh, the, the things that once were out of place or dislocated, that they suddenly came together. Uh, they, they were made whole. They were, they were made complete. Specifically referring to the ankle and foot area of the body. Um, could have been like drop foot maybe. I think drop foot maybe is what comes to my mind. Maybe something like that. Something was not right in that area. And, and it was as though it was useless, helpless, hopeless, broken, unfixable. Nobody could fix it. That's why at over 40 years old, he's still struggling with this. But suddenly, in a moment, everything that this man had been living with changed in a moment. What was unfixable seemingly was suddenly fixed. He was made whole in this moment. In an instant, he not only was completely healed, but think about this. If you've ever injured a bone in your body, how much physical therapy it takes to learn how to walk again. So the miracle gets really big the more that you think about this. It's not only that everything became whole right then and there, but he was also able to walk just like that. I mean, you think about this man. He never went through the, the baby stage. You know, we've, we've got a couple of grandbabies now, and they run all over the place. I keep telling Christy, we need to baby-proof our house. We need to put locks on the cabinets again and get rid of all of our knickknacks because they're all over. I've not chased babies in a long time. I'm too fat and old for it. That's all there is to it. It takes a while for a baby to learn how to walk without wobbling all over the place and then falling down numerous times. This man doesn't go through any of that. He didn't spend months of physical therapy learning to walk. And on top of that, he walked and it also says that he leaped into the air immediately. What had once been completely unfixable was now fixed and not just fixed, but fixed beyond your wildest imagination. Fixed. Can you imagine how you would respond if you witnessed or experienced God doing exactly that in your life or in someone else's life? How, how do you respond when God shows up and fixes the seemingly unfixable in your life? You notice how not only the healed man, but also the crowd respond to this unexpected miracle. Take a look at that in, in verses 8 through 10. 
Verses 8 through 10, Luke tells us that this newly healed man entered the temple with Peter and John, right? And, and what's he doing? The text tells us that he's walking and leaping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him. They recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, the text tells us. And they were what? Filled with wonder. Back to the awe we talked about last week. Filled with wonder, filled with awe, filled with amazement at what had happened to this man. And the response to God unexpectedly fixing what seemingly seemed unfixable, this seemingly unfixable brokenness that was in this lame beggar's life, the response was wonder and amazement, praises to God. This man who had never been in the temple was now in the temple, not only walking, but he's leaping and he's praising God with absolute pure joy. That's the response. The crowd gathered in the temple. They were filled with wonder and amazement because the broken man that they had saw at the doorway of that temple every Sunday, every Wednesday, whatever days they went to the temple, that broken man was now fixed in a powerfully miraculous way. Now, when I read the accounts of miraculous things like this in the Bible, I wonder why God chose to do them. Why did he choose to do that? Why did he put them in here for us to read? I know that God did not heal everyone. That's an easy one. He did not heal everyone that was in need of healing. This much is true. It's obvious in the ministry of Jesus when he was physically on this earth. It's true even in his ministry through the spirit-empowered church in the book of Acts. So why does God choose to heal this man in such an unexpected way at this time in the story? I think, as we'll see in the next chunk of text here in a few weeks, Peter explains that this was done by faith in the name of Jesus and that the intended goal, there was a goal for this miracle. And Peter says that the goal of this miracle is simply repentance, refreshment, full restoration to God from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. You look at uh, verses 16 through 21 of chapter 3 and you'll see that. That's the goal. This unexpected, miraculous work of God, where God unexpectedly fixes the seemingly unfixable, was meant for something. It was meant to turn people to Jesus for salvation. The disciples didn't go out and start a healing and deliverance ministry. And I'm not knocking on them. That's not what they did primarily. They did not try to market some weird growth scheme for the church. Send me $100. We'll send you this anointed water that you can splash on your feet and they'll get better. And the shorter foot will grow out and be the same length as the other. Get the right camera angle and it looks like it actually happens. None of that's going on. Every time the Spirit did something miraculous in the early church, 
They saw it as an opportunity to preach repentance from sin and salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. That was the message that was preached every time. To to, to preach these texts any differently than that is to rip text out of their context and to misconstrue the plain message of the Bible that God gives to us. As I said at the beginning of this message, I think this entire section, chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Acts, it is meant to teach us that the spread of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ crucified for our sin, risen in victory over Satan, sin and death, returning as the reigning king of kings and lord of lords, the spread of this message of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, it cannot be stopped. No matter how much opposition happens. It cannot be stopped. There is no power in all of creation that can stop the miraculous, saving, transforming, healing power of the message of Jesus. This is what God does. God specializes in showing up in the most unexpected ways. And he fixes the seemingly unfixable, broken things in our lives. God can heal a man who had been unable to walk for 40 years since birth. Okay, if God can do that. I mean, and that's pretty minor compared to leaving a tomb empty, yo. You know what I mean? I mean, come on, he left a tomb empty. Healing somebody who can't walk's an easy thing. But if he can do all that, then nothing can stop him from saving you. Nothing can stop him from saving you. Not even your own sin can stop him from saving you. And you might be like, wait a minute, bro. Yes, your sin separates you from God. That is the barrier that stops you from being saved. If you're not saved, if you have not trusted in Jesus. But there's nothing that you could have done in your life that would be so bad that God couldn't save you right here, right now, give you a brand new heart so you would understand the words that I'm saying. So that you would be regenerated and belong to him right here, right now. There's nothing that can stop God from saving you from whatever depth of sin you find yourself in today. Nothing would stop God from fixing what seems to be unfixable in your life. Your cold heart, your pride, your unbelief, your marriage, your friendships, your hurts, your hang-ups, your habits. Nothing can stop God from radically changing your life by the power of the gospel. Now, I don't know what things you walked in with today, the things that you would say, yeah, there is this thing deep down inside of me has been following me around I don't, know, I don't know what that is in your life. I don't know what's been stopping you from believing or even sharing the gospel. I don't know if you settled for just merely surviving one tough day to the next. I don't know what that burning issue is that's plagued your life since you were born. I do know that God knows what cripples you today. I don't have to know. I don't mind knowing. If you want to confess and tell me, that's fine. Or even another brother or sister next to you. But I do know this, um, there's no amount of money, no amount of possessions that are going to fix what does cripple you. There is no new social status that's going to fix what cripples you. No bigger house, no new marital status that's going to fix the crippled thing inside of you. No new friend crowd, no new hobby, no drug, no drink. No bigger truck, bigger car, bigger motorcycle. None of that. 
No new exercise plan, even though I need one. It's not going to satisfy or fix what cripples you deep down inside. I want to say this. It's only Jesus can heal what cripples you. I've done the best I could to say this. We don't do this often. I'm going to show you a a six-minute video. I think this guy does a really good job of saying it. So I keep pressing 
can't make any promises about tomorrow. I'm surprised I've held on this long. God, just make me feel like I'm not crazy. God, let me know that I'm not just making friends with these walls when I pray. I'm not questioning you. I just got questions. Don't leave me here. God for the gift of poetry. Amen. Only Jesus can heal 
what cripples you. Scriptures are clear. It is by Jesus' stripes that we can be healed from not only what is physically broken in us, but what is spiritually broken in us primarily. It's only by the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb that we can have a future hope that is full of salvation and restoration in heaven. There, There will be no more tears. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow, no more opposition, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. Even your hardened heart this morning cannot stop the Spirit of God from coming and giving you a brand new heart full of faith whereby you would be free from the shackles of your sin and death and be released to leap with joy and walk by the Spirit of God. The only requirement for God to show up and do the seemingly impossible in our lives, whether you need to be experiencing salvation this morning or whether you have brokenness in your life that you're asking God to fix, the only requirement is that you come to him in prayer like a desperate beggar. That's really it. A desperate beggar in need of his unexpected miraculous help. Expect him to do great things in your lives. Ask him for it. Trust that he'll show up. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Pray, God, that you would continue to minister to us in these closing moments. We love you so much. We trust that you are. You are the God of the miraculous. And God who loves to fix the seemingly unfixable. We pray, God, that you would show up in these moments and do exactly that. Trust you to do it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.